Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. We're going to read the Bible now, so I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 11. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you can scan the QR code on the screen. We're going to be reading chapters 11 and 12. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Hi there and welcome to the Bible Talks. It's nice to see you. Uh, it's nice for me to be back in. Thanks to Tim for looking after the last couple of weeks. And uh, hasn't Isaiah got a lot for us to think about? 
as we look at it together. Let's pray for God to help us understand this passage and then we're going to dig in and try and understand these whole two chapters and what they're teaching us uh, about the Lord Jesus. So please pray with me. Father God, thanks so much that we have the chance to take some time out from learning all kinds of other things to learn the most important thing, and that is what you have spoken to us about salvation in Jesus. Please help us to understand more about Jesus as we look at Isaiah, and we pray, Lord, that this will change our lives so that we might honour Jesus as he deserves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know you might find this hard to believe, but back in the day... UNSW actually offered degrees in things that were useful. Can you believe that? Amazing, isn't it? For example, in the early 1990s, when I was going through university, a friend of mine did a degree right here at UNSW in wool and pastoral sciences. Now, there's a handy degree, right? There's a useful degree. There's something valuable for society. And with a degree like that, you could really help people? Couldn't you really do something useful for society? But sadly, you can't. Because a degree in wool and pastoral sciences at UNSW has gone the way of the dinosaurs. In fact, if you want to study nearly anything agricultural, you are at the wrong university. We don't do that anymore. And that means my opening illustration for today's talk is about to be understood by perhaps two people. Maybe, if I'm lucky, if if there's anyone who studies microbiology. But I'm a risk taker, so let's go for it. Here goes. Have you heard of a thing called biochar? No. Uh, (laughs) It is, well, actually, let's hold it off for a moment. It is cutting edge in agriculture at the moment, but it was actually developed long ago by the ancient Mayans. Let me read to you from this abstract from a recent academic paper. Biochar is a carbon-rich material resulting from the pyrolysis, that's the burning at a really high heat, of plant and animal biomass. Biochar has a long history as a soil amendment for centuries since the Mayan civilization. Attaining sustainability in agriculture is not easy. However, the addition of biochar may reduce the adverse effects of numerous malpractices in conventional agriculture. Biochar benefits soil physiochemical properties such as soil bulk density, aggregate stability, porosity, water holding capacity, and soil organic carbon content. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Oh, yeah. Oh dear. <sighs> this stuff up on the screen now, this, this, this biochar is basically burnt stuff. Burnt at a low oxygen, kind of in a low oxygen environment c- to create just the right kind of rich carbon material that really helps soil to hold water. I can see you're excited about this. I can see you're as excited as I am. Soil to hold water and hold nutrients that means plants grow better. Now the Mayans worked it out 500 years ago. They knew that fire could create new opportunities for growth. You probably know that the Australian indigenous people worked this out thousands of years ago as well. It's come to be called fire land management or perhaps fire stick farming and it basically means controlled burning of a contained area of vegetation to create better new growth and sustainable farming. Now, it's really interesting that destruction caused by fire can actually bring about new growth and flourishing. Because when we think about fire, we just think of destruction. But fire also brings forth hope of new growth. Now, when we think about God's judgment, we often just think about 
destruction. But as we look at this passage today, we are going to see that God is bringing new hope from the ashes of judgment. But what about you and your hope? Does your hope come from the ashes of judgment? Does your hope have anything to do with God's judgment? If you are perhaps a follower of Jesus, has your hope come from judgment? Let's have a look at this passage and we're going to try to work out whether Christian hope has anything to do with destruction and judgment. We're at point one, from the ashes of judgment. And you've probably already worked this out, but you don't have to read the prophecy of Isaiah for very long before you get the clear message that God's judgment is coming. It's very clear in the early chapters of Isaiah. Um, It's clear that God's judgment is going to fall first on his own chosen people for their rebellion against him. And then God's judgment is going to fall on the nations around Israel who have treated God's chosen people badly. And God's judgment is likened to fire in these chapters of Isaiah. Listen to the imagery of judgment in chapter 9, verse 19. You might just need to turn back a page or two. Chapter 9, verse 19. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. God's judgment of his own chosen people, Israel, is described with the kind of destructive force of an all-consuming fire. Now, we saw a similar image back in Isaiah's commissioning. In chapter 6, just head back a couple more pages. Chapter 6, verses 11 to 13. Isaiah 6, verses 11 to 13. Let me read them to you. Then Isaiah said, How long, O Lord? And God said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth might remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. See, even after the Assyrian army trashes the nation Israel in God's judgment, even when there is just a tenth left in the land, those verses just told us, the fire of God's judgment will burn again and all that is left will just be a blackened stump of a tree. That's the way God's judgment is being spoken about against his people. You know, God chose the great nation, the great kingdom of Assyria. God chose that pagan nation to be the instrument of his judgment upon his own people. The great Assyrian nation, the superpower of the 8th century BC, was God's chosen instrument to deliver his judgment upon his rebellious people. And Assyria did that through military conquest of Israel. But you know, as you keep reading through chapter 10 it also becomes clear that Assyria should not get too arrogant about being deliverers of God's judgment because in chapter 10, halfway through, we start to see that God, God's judgment is about to be poured out on the Assyrians because of their arrogance and their rebellion. Listen to what God says about the fire of judgment coming upon the Assyrians, the chosen instrument of his judgment. From chapter 10, verses 17 to 19. Chapter 10, 17 to 19. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest, talking about the king of Assyria, 
and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Can you see from verse 19 that when God turns his judgment against Assyria, there'll be very little left. So little that a kid with poor maths and poor English can count it on one hand and write it down. But you know, there are a few hints in these passages that life after judgment for the people of Israel and Judah will have a little bit more hope than life after judgment for Assyria. Now, just before we look at the hope in today's passage, we have one more scary prospect to stare down. There is a haunting statement that comes up a few times in chapters 9 and 10 as God speaks about his judgment. Let me read them to you. Firstly, from chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west, that's the enemies of God's people, they devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, God's anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And then go on to chapter 9, verse 21. 9, verse 21. Manasseh devours Ephraim and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, God's anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And chapter 10, verse 4. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is a scary prospect. Can you imagine the prospect of God pouring out his righteous judgment, his righteous anger upon you? And that pouring out of judgment does not exhaust God's anger. That's a scary statement, isn't it, that keeps coming up. What a terrifying prospect. The judgment of God falls upon you and smashes you through the violence of an invading nation, trashing your life and your home, and then God is still angry at you. There's a terrifying prospect. It must have left the original readers wondering how God's anger could ever be turned away. If even the judgment of foreign armies trashing your home and destroying your life does not exhaust God's anger, then what possibly could? That is the context for the passage that we're looking at today. So we're at point two, hope for the future. Point two, hope for the future. As we move into chapter 11, we are focusing again on that stump, that little tiny remnant left among God's people after the fire of judgment brought by the Assyrian army. And just like in chapter 6, the regrowth from this stump sounds more like a person than a twig. Have a look. Chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Hope beyond judgment for God's people seems to lie in a person. And that designation of this person as from the stump of Jesse is actually telling us the family line from which this person shall arise. The Jesse that the verse is speaking about is the father of Israel's great king, David. David was king over Israel around about 1000 BC. And God promised David that one of his descendants would rule over God's people forever. 
And as we start Isaiah 11, we've got that promise kind of repeated. It's one of David's descendants, one from the line of Jesse. He's going to be the vital shoot that sprouts after God's judgment to bring hope to God's people. And have a look at how the shoot is described in verse 2. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The shoot will be equipped with God's Spirit. Now, in Old Testament times, God's Spirit was only given to a very few select individuals in Israel to fulfill very special roles for all the people of Israel. Roles like prophet, priest, king. And from the way that the Spirit is described in this verse, you can see why God's Spirit will be so important for prophets, priests and kings. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge and righteous fear of the Lord. That is, they are the things that you need if you are going to be a good prophet, priest or king. And only God can truly give that by His Spirit. And so you might be thinking, prophet, priest, king, which one will this shoot be? Which one will he be? Well, we're not explicitly told in these verses, but as the passage moves forward, it focuses on what looks like another role altogether, the role of judge. Have a look at verses 3 to 5. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Judgment. A judge. Really? Did you expect that? Do you expect the great hope for Israel after judgment would be a judge? It's just not the kind of superhero that I picture. I don't know about you. See, when I think of superhero saviours, I don't usually think of judges with white curly wigs that look really stupid. Sorry, Lord students. Um, I, I just don't think like that. Perhaps maybe you could come at me with Judge Dredd and go, hey, there's one. He, you know, but, but uh, things to an outlier. When I think of people who are going to save their nation, I don't normally think of judges. So why does Israel need a super judge? Here's the first chance for you to have a chat and think about this with the person next to you. There's the question. Why does Israel need a judge? You've got 30 seconds. Enjoy. Okay, let's have a bit of a think about this together. God's restoration after judgment, it's not just about rebuilding the city, the walls, the buildings, so that people can just do whatever they like in the city again. God is promising a judge because his people need justice. The poor, the oppressed, they need justice. Isaiah has already prophesied against the rich and powerful people who exploit the poor and the vulnerable. God's people, after judgment, are not just going to need new houses and new cities. 
God is planning to give his people real justice through a judge who is equipped with God's spirit to judge justly. The righteous judge won't judge just by what he sees because your eyes can be deceived. He won't just judge by what he hears because your ears can be fooled. But when this spirit-equipped judge judges, he will judge by the wisdom and knowledge of God's spirit. He will be able to deliver true justice. Do you want an example of why true justice is so important? This lady is a good example. Don't know whether you recognise her. She's been in the news this week. Just out of interest, who does recognise her? Yeah, a few of you. Oh, wow, well done. Her name is Kathleen Folbig and she has been in prison for the past 20 years after being convicted of murdering her four children. This week, Kathleen has been pardoned for those crimes and released because new scientific evidence has come to light which suggests the children probably died of natural causes. Now, whatever the truth of this case, true justice here has been very hard to find. And I'm not sure what the truth of this case is. But it is highly likely that a woman grieving the deaths of her four children was wrongfully imprisoned for the next 20 years of her life. I can't say that for certain, but it seems to be highly likely that that is what happens. Sometimes it is really hard to get true justice. But if wrongs are going to be righted, then you need a righteous judge who can judge things perfectly. That is what God is promising to do for his people in these verses. Now, please don't think that this focus on the judge's role in these verses means that the promised descendant of David won't be a king. Who do you think did most of the judging in the ancient world? Why do you think we call it today a courtroom? Kings did most of the judging in their royal court. And right here, God is promising to give his people a perfectly righteous king who will judge his people justly. Can you imagine a time when God's people could have perfect justice? Can you imagine it? What would the world look like if God gave us a king who could judge everything with perfect justice? It would be an idyllic world, wouldn't it? And that picture gets extended in the verses that follow. Let's have a look at it, verses 6 to 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The coming of this spirit-equipped judge is going to bring an Eden-like peace to God's whole world. This promised ruler will calm the farm and bring peace in the zoo. And you don't need me to tell you that this is something that we do not experience right now. There was a beautiful story recently uh, on the screen about a family in America who, um, well, they rescued an orphaned baby squirrel and they nursed it back to health 
And then came the great day when it was time for the cute little fella to be released back into the wild. It was a beautiful moment until this happened. Oh dear. The family cat jumped the baby squirrel. And I've watched the video, it's not, it's not pretty. The cat races off with the baby squirrel in its mouth. And the, the family try to catch the cat, but cat is gone. And let me just say, I don't think the squirrel lived happily ever after. That's the way animals normally behave in our world, right? That's normal in our world. Wolves and lambs don't play nicely together. Leopards and young, le young goats don't lie down next to each other unless one is snacking on the other. Cows and bears don't chill out together without some serious side-eye from the cow and lions don't often become vegan. Okay? You know that, I know that. This picture is promising a return to Eden, somehow. A restoration of peace that extends even to natural enemies in the animal kingdom. It's a beautiful picture of a restored, peaceful creation. Animals getting along in peace rather than ripping into each other. But have you thought about why children are involved? Did you notice, in, as we're talking about all the animals, you, you've got a few kitties in there as well, playing in places that we think perhaps kitties shouldn't be playing. Why are the kids involved? I reckon this question is going to really push you to think outside the square. Why don't you enjoy it with the person next to you? Here it is. Why the children in this vision of Edenic peace? That's a terrible question. Grammar, grammar, grammatically terrible, but forgive me for that. I think you know what I'm asking. Go for it. Okay, I'm keen to collect a few answers. I know I'm taking my life in my hands asking for answers here, but I'm, I'm, well, let's give it a shot. What do you think? Remember, you don't have to be right, you just have to have a go. Doing. think like that? I think you're onto it. I knew you guys are good. This is, this is excellent. You're right onto it. Um, I think that's what's going on here. It's a little reminder that before the mess of sin destroyed peaceful relations in the Garden of Eden, humans actually did have the dominion that was promised over the rest of creation, animals included. God had chosen that humans would rule over the rest of his creation. And, and in this promise of an Eden-like peace, you've got even baby humans, even little humans, leading the creation, ruling over the creation, as humanity was created to do. Well done on all of you who, uh, who got that easily. I'll have to think of some harder questions, won't I? This is a picture of the curse reversed. And it would have been almost unimaginable to people stuck in the mess of sin and judgment. And as the mighty Assyrian army marches over the hill in your direction to completely trash you and your country, 
it must have been some comfort to hold on to this promise that God was somehow going to make things right. One more really interesting thing in this third section of our passage today is this promise of a beautiful future under the reign of God's righteous judge. It's not just restricted to the people of God's chosen nation, Israel. This might surprise you, but have a look. Verses 10 to 12, chapter 11, verses 10 to 12. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. God will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. God is going to gather back all of his scattered people from all the places they've been scattered in exile. Now that is expected, we we expect that. But what is a little surprising is that God is also going to gather in people who aren't from Israel and aren't from Judah. God's promised judge king is going to be like a beacon of hope for people from all nations. The image that our Bibles translate as signal is the image of a banner being raised that people can gather behind and be united under. It used to happen in times of war, but these days I think the only place it pretty much happens is at school sports carnivals. Uh, Maybe it happened at your school sports carnival. Did your house have a banner that you united under and rallied behind and fought bravely for? Exactly, you know what we're talking about. Um, Back in World War I, the Australian regiments had these kind of banners and one original World War I banner still hangs in the St. Matthias Church just up the road in Paddington. I thought I'd show it to you. It's this beautiful old banner. This is the banner that the first Australian regiment gathered behind as they stormed the beaches at Gallipoli and then later as they moved forward in the trenches of the Western Front in France. And you can see how important this banner would have been to you in battle. If you've just jumped out of a longboat at Gallipoli Beach and somehow you've managed to run through the death zone and somehow make it safely to some cover, do you know the next thing you would do? You would look for your regiment. You would look for your leader. How do you find them in this mess of casualties everywhere and bullets going everywhere? Well, there's the standard. That's what you're looking for. You're gathering there, you're uniting there. The emblem of your, re- your regiment. That raised banner, that emblem lifted high, that is what the root of Jesse is promised to be. And that promise is not just that Israelites will gather under his good leadership, but also that people from other nations will be included. These verses are not just promising peace amongst the animal kingdom but a peaceful gathering of people from all nations under the good leadership of God's promised judge. And that brings us to our last point today, point three, where we can begin moving forward in history to see how God has fulfilled these amazing promises for his people. So we're at point three, the basis of true hope. Now, whenever we look at God's promises in the Old Testament, we'll often find that they have a certain level of fulfilment in the near history of that Old Testament. But an even bigger kind 
of eternal fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are nearly always those two levels of fulfillment in God's Old Testament promises. So you can look ahead in Israel's near history after the Assyrian invasion and the deportation of the northern kingdom into exile in Assyria and you can even look further forward to the invasion of the next superpower nation, the, the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom and carted them all off as God's judgment for their disobedience into, into exile in Babylon. And um, you, can, you can go beyond even the plundering of the Babylonians, about, which happened around about 600 BC. And you can, the, you've got the, the whole southern kingdom wiped out, just like the northern kingdom was wiped out. And you've almost got the promised land emptied of God's people. And, you know, the, the, the exiles are over in Babylon with Daniel and his mates over there. And you can, even, uh, you can even then go beyond exile and you can look at the way God keeps his promises and, and actually start to bring his people back to the promised land, 70 years after they first went to exile in Babylon. And God starts bringing his people back. And it must have been incredible to be rescued out of exile in a foreign land and brought home and be able to start afresh and re-establish new shoots after the destruction of judgment. But this passage has already given us some clues that that return from exile is not the complete fulfilment that God is promising. Have you picked up the clues? Last chance to have a chat with the person next to you today. Here's the question. What are the clues that tell us that the return from exile is not the final fulfilment of God's promises? 30 seconds, go for it. Okay, I suspect that was too easy for you. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. Please forgive me if that was too easy. That small historical fulfilment of life after judgment that comes as the exile sort of trapes back to the promised land, it does not bring about the promises of peace and justice that we've just looked at. The lamb could not yet trust the lion. And sadly, even the humans whom God had rescued out of exile could not trust each other to act with justice and peace. So we've, we've had a glimpse of God's promised fulfilment, but nothing near the, the full extent that God has promised. It's only with the arrival of the Lord Jesus that we meet the true shoot from the stump of Jesse who can truly fulfill these promises for the world. As chapter 12 closes off the first main section of the book of Isaiah, it speaks about the things that God's people will be able to say when God totally fulfills his promises. And the first one is that Isaiah 12 reminds us that the total fulfillment will mean God's anger turned away. Have a look at 12, chapter 12, verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The righteous anger of God that could not be assuaged even by national judgment and by military thumping, that rightful anger of God that still persisted even after the complete burning of the promised land and the other nations around Israel, that anger 
that seemed like it could never be taken away, somehow this verse promises that it will be turned away. Not just God bottling up his righteous anger and sitting on it and trying not to explode. Not just God saying, oh, let's forget about it. It doesn't matter very much. Not just God saying, don't worry. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that God's anger at human sin is completely poured out on the Lord Jesus at the cross. At the cross, God steps in and all of his righteous anger at our sin, he takes upon himself as he bears the punishment himself that should have been on sinners like you and me. God's anger can only be turned away from sinners like us because God's anger was completely turned upon Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death at the cross in our place. Now, there's a big religious word that talks about this process of God's anger being turned away. It is a potentially scary word, but it's a beautiful word. It means something beautiful. The word is propitiation. You've probably heard about it. Really important word. To propitiate someone is to do something that takes their anger away. So you might propitiate a friend who is angry at you by perhaps apologising for the thing that you did wrong that hurt them. That's propitiation. Propitiation sounds big and scary, but it truly is beautiful and it's the key to relationships. Propitiation. It's exactly what Jesus did at the cross, turning away, propitiating the anger of God so that you and I do not have to face the anger we deserve to face from God. So I want to ask you a little bit of a personal question. How do you think God feels about you right now? How do you think God feels about you right now? Because we've all caused God anger, right? We've all done things that mean God should be angry at us. We haven't listened to God like we should have. We haven't obeyed God like we should have. Perhaps we didn't even treat God as God. We didn't even let him be God in our universe. We've done all kinds of things that deserve God's anger. God has every right to be angry at every one of us. And that is your situation right now, unless you have asked God to forgive you for your sin through the death of Jesus Christ. So right now, there's only two kinds of people in this room and in this world. Right now, God is either absolutely angry at you for the sin that you've committed or absolutely not angry at you in any way. Can you believe that? That They're the only two situations that exist in our world now. And the difference is not about what you've done. The difference is all about what Jesus has done in turning God's anger away from us at the cross. Our salvation today only rises from the ashes of judgment because Jesus took that judgment in our place. And may I say quickly that if you haven't yet asked God to forgive you and you are worried about God's anger, which would be a wise thing to do, the good news is that God invites you today to put your trust in Jesus 
to ask for his forgiveness, to repent of your sins. You can move from God's absolute anger to God's absolute forgiveness today. So please think about doing that if you haven't done that yet. Can you believe that Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, who had every right to condemn us and throw us under God's judgment and anger, can you believe that he instead threw himself under God's righteous judgment and anger? Can you believe that? What a saviour. Isaiah promises that God's people would sing about this, this salvation. Have a look at chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. 12, 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Salvation, salvation, salvation in these verses. Salvation is the key theme in Isaiah chapter 12. Salvation that comes through God's anger being turned away. Salvation is not just about God giving you eternal life or God rescuing you from Satan's lies, salvation at its most fundamental sense is being rescued from having to face God's rightful anger and judgment at your sin. Salvation means the previously angry God now becomes your comforter and loving father. Salvation means that rather than perishing under God's anger and judgment, you can live forever in God's renewed creation where Jesus will rule forever and where the animals and the humans will have justice and peace forever. Isaiah closes chapter 12 by reminding us of the joy that comes from this beautiful salvation. The last three verses there, chapter 12, 4 to 6. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This incredible salvation that God has brought to this, his world through the Lord Jesus, it's worthy of praise. The restoration that God has brought about through the Lord Jesus is worthy of shouting throughout the world. See, this is good news for people from every nation. The final establishment of God's righteous judge and king over his creation has implications for every person in every nation and it should be proclaimed with joy in every nation. Do you know, sometimes we think that praising God, it's just about the singing bit in church. Oh, no, 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 much, much more. Praising God. See, um, praise is really just telling other people how good something is. You might praise the coffee at a cafe you love by raving about it to your friends. You might praise a show you watched on Netflix by telling people how good it is. That is what praise is. And if we limit praise to just singing in church, we are selling praise way too short. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said about people who've been saved by Jesus and praise. Up on the screen. Oh, is it there? No trouble. Excellent. 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvellous light. This verse is not just saying that people who have been saved by Jesus should sing a lot in church. This verse is about praising God to your friends, to your neighbours, to your classmates. This is about praising God by declaring the greatness of what he has done for his people through the Lord Jesus. So if you've been saved by Jesus and you are thankful and joyful on account of that salvation, I hope your thankfulness and joy overflow into declaring God's praises to people who don't yet know or don't yet understand the incredible thing that God has done. And you know, there is no more loving thing than you could do for your friends, for your classmates or for your neighbours than declare God's praises by speaking to them the truth about salvation in Jesus. So I hope that that will overflow in your life and in my life. Let's ask God to help us do it. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this amazing passage that uh, reminds us so clearly um, why Jesus' death in our place is so important. Thank you that uh, you've shown us the the depths of your anger at, at human sin and yet you've shown us the depths of your love in stepping in and taking the judgment and anger for our sin in our place. Father, we pray that with this beautiful salvation that you offer to us, we pray that you'll help us to take up the offer, to repent and ask your forgiveness and trust in the Lord Jesus as our great judge and king. And we pray that uh, as we experience this great salvation and appreciate just how much you've done for us, that it will overflow our lives in thankful praise of you. Please help us to be people who are joyful and thankful by praising you, by speaking your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. appreciate just how much you've done for us, that it will overflow our lives in thankful praise of you. Please help us to be people who are joyful and thankful by praising you, by speaking your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.